This morning we're going to be in Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4, we're continuing on our time uh, in that uh, in that book in Galatians, so go ahead and turn there. Um, Pastor Nick uh, is currently in Hawaii. Um, he is spending his 20th anniversary uh, with his wife in Hawaii. Um, you know, warm, tropical Hawaii, um, and it, it, it seems like our... Uh, our building said, hey, you want to know what it feels like to be in Hawaii right now, um, and turned on the heat for us. Um, and so, um, so we're just going to continue on and pretend we're in Hawaii. Um, so thank you again, like I, like I mentioned before. My name is Jake. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, we're going to read God's Word here in just a moment. Um, but this morning, we're going to look at uh, often a... a, a, a a, a topic in Scripture, a topic in our Christian life that is often kind of glossed over. Oh, that's a nice idea, but we just kind of move on quickly. Um, looking at adoption and what it means that God adopts us into His family. So with that in mind, would you please stand as we read God's Word? We stand every week in as a reminder um, uh, that, that we're reading God's very word, that he is the creator of all, um, and he has spoken to us, and so we approach it with awe and reverence. So read with me uh, Galatians chapter 4, follow along with me, Galatians chapter 4, picking it up in verse 1. I mean that an heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Bow your heads and let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we study and hear from your word this morning, Lord, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things of your law. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Grow us this morning in the knowledge of your word and of your salvation. Grow us in our knowledge of your steadfast love. Grow us in our love for our Savior. Grow us this morning in our trust in you. Jesus, as we hear the preaching of your word, would you please help us to focus, help us not to get distracted, for things of eternal value are happening here this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would lead me and guide me in my words, and that you would anoint the preaching this morning to change lives and strengthen our faith. Lord, we give this time to you. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I wanted to, to, to start this morning um, and share with you the life of Limwell Haynes. Limwell Haynes uh, was born in 1753. 
uh, to a son of a, uh, an African-American man and a white woman in Connecticut. And he was abandoned by them and eventually sold into indentured servitude. By the providence of God, he was placed in a, in a Christian home, adopted and treated as one of the family. And he was raised to love God. As a child, he would spend most evenings reading and memorizing scripture when the other kids were outside playing. Often the, the, the family would come and they would ask Haynes to, to read a passage of scripture or a published sermon uh, for that night's family study. One night, young Haynes decided to read his own sermon instead, to which the family was amazed and they asked, is that, is that a George Whitfield sermon? Is that a, is that a Jonathan Edwards sermon? To which young Haynes responded, no, it was a Haynes Limwell would go on to volunteer in the Continental Army in 1776 and fight for the war for independence. After the war, he became the first black preacher ordained in the United States in 1785. Following after Jonathan Edwards and others, Haynes was a reformed Calvinist preacher and taught the sovereignty of God over all of life, shepherded his congregation towards holiness and orthodoxy. And it was this theology that made him one of the first Reformed preachers to speak out against American slavery on a theological basis. In one of his sermons, Haynes explained what it, what it was like to become a Christian, what it was like to be born again or regenerated in the faith. And he says that a person who is born again, he loves God supremely. He loves the law of God. He loves the gospel and everything that is godlike. His affections are set on things that are above. His treasure is there, and there his heart will be also. He loves the people of God in this world. He loves all mankind with a holy and virtuous love. Although he cannot love those who are enemies of God with a love of complacency, yet he loves them with a love of benevolence. He is of a noble and generous spirit, and, the supreme, and this supreme love to God and benevolence to man is spoken of in Scripture as the very essence of true religion. The life of Limwell Haynes closely resembles our text this morning, brought into the house as a servant, and through adoption it changed the course of his life and all who would come and learn from him. On his gravestone, by his wish, it is written, Here lies the dust of a poor, hell-deserving sinner who ventured into eternity, trusting wholly on the merits of Christ for salvation. Here in chapter 4 of Galatians, Paul is continuing to build on this argument that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, that adherence to the law, good works, won't save you. At the end of chapter 3, he answers the question that I know all of us have been asking these last few weeks, well, if the law can't save us, why did God give us the law? That, that's a question you've been asking, right? Yeah. Why then the law? What was the point of the Mosaic law in the first place if it could not forgive sins? 
He says that the law was meant to constrain and train the Jewish people until the Messiah comes. Verse 21 in chapter 3, Paul says that, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? If it cannot, uh, if it cannot save, certainly not, Paul answers. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise would be in Jesus Christ to those who believe. So the law is like a tutor. It's like a, a teacher which, which taught the Jewish people the holy standard of God. It revealed the sinfulness of man and showed us because we could not keep the law, salvation would only be through Jesus Christ. The law was our guardian, our babysitter, until Christ came. This morning, Galatians comes to us with a very simple logic, simple yet incredibly profound. It's profound in how we are to view God and our Christian life in faith. First, in Galatians chapter 4, Paul highlights the difference between slaves and heirs, or servants and heirs. And then he moves into, and he highlights the, the fullness of time that Jesus came. And then finally, he shows that Jesus came to redeem us so that we may be adopted by God. And so that's kind of the, the logic that we're going to follow today. Slaves and heirs, Jesus came at the fullness of time to adopt us into God's family. And so, uh, Paul, looking at verse 1, Paul is using the analogy, and we just read it, of a child in a household. Now imagine there are two children in your house. There are two children in the house. Uh, the first one is a son. He is, he is the heir. He's the son of the father. That's, that's one child. The second child is a servant or a slave. And this was fairly common, especially in wealthy Roman families, to have uh, the, the children of slaves be a slave in the house and attend to the needs of the house. And so there, there are two boys one a slave and one an heir. And if you, were to, if you were to walk into this house, it would actually be really difficult to tell the difference between these two boys. Both would be dressed similarly. Both would have duties around the house that they needed to perform. They both would have some sort of education and learning that they needed to accomplish. The rules that they needed to follow were fairly similar. And even as Paul says here, the heir is no different from the slave. Now, although these two boys may, may look similar, there is a significant difference between the son of this family and the slave. One is the heir. Someday the son will no longer be a servant in the house. Kids, you can rejoice in that. One day you will no longer have to do chores, but will run, one day run the household and receive the inheritance. When he has come of age, when the son, the heir, has come of age, he will cast off the rules, he will cast off the schooling, he will cast off the schedules, and he will have freedom and liberty as the owner of everything. And Paul here, in one sense, is explaining the reasoning behind 
all of redemptive history in the Bible leading up to Jesus. Why did God give us the promises to Abraham? Why did God give the promises to Abraham? To show that salvation would be through faith alone in Jesus. Why did God give us the Mosaic Law? To show us that salvation would be through faith alone in Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament is supposed to teach us and show us and point us to Jesus Christ. In one sense, Paul is explaining here with the, with the imagery of these two sons, the big, cosmic, big picture, redemptive, historical, overarching theme of all of history and all of the Bible and all that God is doing. It's a big picture idea. But he also brings it down to us. He doesn't just leave it in this big, lofty, historical argument. Verse 3, he says that in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. See, in this story, in this analogy, we, we are not the son. We are not the heir. We are actually the slave child in this family. We were living in the house not as the heir, but as the slave child. Why? Because we were enslaved. We were slaves because we were enslaved. We were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's some debate about what Paul is talking about here, these elementary principles of the world. Is he referring to uh, 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 the Jewish traditions uh, or the Jewish practices under the law? Or is he referring to the outside Greek and Roman philosophy in the religion of the world? And I think two verses really help us understand this idea of elementary principles of the world. The first is down in Galatians 4, uh, verse 8. So just look a couple of verses down, verse 8. He says, uh, Paul continues on, that you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. And then in verse 9, he says, how can you turn back to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? There it is again. So elementary principles, according to Paul here in Galatians 4, are false gods and false ways of living. The second verse to help us understand this elementary principle of the world is Colossians 2. You don't have to flip there. We'll have it on the screen. Colossians 2, Paul says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. So here, enslaved means uh, the empty philosophies according to human tradition. See, we are, we are enslaved by empty philosophy, empty ideas of our times, that which our world says is true, and this is what reality is. Deceptive arguments that would cause us to act in a way that is contrary to God. Like in the early church, there are many ways we are enslaved through the principles of the world. 
We are also enslaved, however, by human tradition, and, and here Paul's referring to the, the Jewish audience in his congregations that he's writing to who were held captive by the traditions of their religious leaders who were more focused on keeping the rules versus a heart that actually loved God. So Paul here says that we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. To be enslaved means you are not free. You have to act in according to that which rules over you. You have to obey that which you are enslaved to. You are not free. Now you might be saying, Jake, we're, we're, not, we're not slaves I have my own free will. I'm not a slave to conspiracy theories or world philosophies or other religions or human tradition. I am not a slave. I am free. I mean, this is, this is the United States. This is the land of the free. I am no slave, nor have I ever been. The Jews in Jesus' day thought similarly. John 8 The Jews said to Jesus, we are the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And Jesus responds to them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Now these traditions of men and philosophies of the world, they only seek to to further entrap us in the sins that that, that we are caught in. And so we're caught in these webs of incorrect thinking and which cause us to, to sin more. We hear things in this world, either in the news or from friends or social media, that sounds enticing. It sounds convincing. But also the traditions that are passed down from our parents, things that we are taught in, just because that's how you were raised doesn't necessarily mean that it's good and right and true how to view the world, how to respond to situations, the way we order our lives in ways that have been ingrained in us from a very early age that are against God, that if we live them out, it would cause us to sin. It's like, put it this way, uh, in, in Britain, in Britain, they drive on the left side of the road, the wrong side. They drive on the wrong side of the road. Um, but uh, they, not only do they drive on the left side of the road, they also have the steering wheel on the other side of the car, okay? And so from the time that they're practicing for their driver's license, they're getting trained in how to drive in the road. They're going to make a left-hand turn a certain way. They're going to make a right-hand turn a certain way. They're, they're, their entire world is going to be affected by how they drive on the road. Now take someone from Britain, bring them over here to the United States, give them the keys, and let them go. Almost immediately, they're going to be breaking some laws, they're going to probably hit something or someone, they're going to be causing damage, because they were trained incorrectly, because they were trained differently. They were trained wrong. In a similar way, these philosophies of the world and our traditions that have been passed down to us, the, the training, they, they, they train us. They train us how to think. They train us how to live, how to view our world, that if we were to act out of the ways that are 
that way, the ways that we've been trained, we would act out in a way that is contrary to God. We sin, and as such, we are, we are enslaved to sin. So all of us, due to the elementary principles of the world and the sin that is in our own hearts, have been enslaved and serve and worship that which is not God, a false worship. We have all been enslaved due to sin. However, look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. How many times do we see this in Scripture? Our way seemed hopeless, but God stepped in. There are so many times when in Scripture when we were headed one direction, but God intervened on our behalf. We were enslaved, but when the fullness of time had come. I love this phrase, the fullness of time. It means that the time that God prepared for redemption, when the time in history was just right, when the earth was, was ripe and ready for salvation, God sent forth His Son. Christ came into the world at the exact right moment. All of history leading up to Christ was preparing the world for His arrival. God was not only working in the Jewish history to bring the Mosaic Law and the promises to Abraham and the prophets uh, to prepare the way for Jesus, but He was orchestrating all of human history to get us to the point where Jesus comes into the world. The time when Jesus came was the perfect time for Him to come. For example, due to the, 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 the Romans, this was arguably the longest time of relative peace in the Middle East and in Europe. Uh, due to the Romans, there was ease of travel and there was safety of travel. Also due to the Greek language, there was only one language spoken at this time, and so it was easy to communicate. The Romans were also relatively tolerant of other religions, particularly of Judaism, The Jews were allowed to practice their religion and uphold daily and yearly rituals. Not to mention during this time, apart from probably the kingships of of David and Solomon, this was arguably when Judaism was the most zealous for things of the law. The religious leaders held strict standards for themselves and for the people. Sacrifices at the temple were regular The people observed holidays and festivals. Religious leaders obeyed with zeal the letter of the law. If there was ever a time where Israel could look back and say, look at how good we are at keeping the law, it was first century. However, we see in their interactions with Jesus, they honored God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. God, uh, sorry, Jesus came at the fullness of time in Israel's history um, to prove that even when they are most successful in keeping the law, they are still far away from God. When it became abundantly and overwhelmingly true that we could not save ourselves. See, God was working all throughout history to prepare the time for when His Son 
was to come to earth. Jesus is the central event to all of history. The fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Paul is picturing this as the crescendo of an orchestra. All history leading up to this glorious moment where God Himself came and dwelled with us. Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth, born of a woman, born of Mary. Jesus became human, became like you and me. All humans were enslaved, and Jesus became one of us. He was born under the law. Jesus was a Hebrew from the tribe of Judah. He was born under the requirements of the law, yet where everyone else failed to uphold the law, Jesus never violated the law of God. Not only did he uphold the letter of the law, he also upheld the spirit of the law as well. Not only did he never murder, he was never angry in his heart towards someone. Not only did he never commit adultery, he never lusted in his heart towards someone. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He loved God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loved his neighbor as himself. Hebrews 4.15 says that we do not have a high priest, speaking of Jesus, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. Jesus came to us, us enslaved people, and became as one of us. And uh, Jesus says in Luke 4, Jesus comes and he says, He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives to those who are enslaved. See, God's standard for the holiness He required of us, it enslaved us. And as the book of Romans talks about it, it wasn't because the law is wrong, but it's us as sinners, we could not keep the law. We could not keep the standard of God. That's why in Galatians 3.10, he says, uh, Paul says that for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. However, Jesus came and submitted himself to the law. Never broke the law to redeem lawbreakers like you and me. Jesus, in his life, did what we wouldn't, and in his death, did what we couldn't. See, we have been talking these last few weeks about justification, that you cannot be justified by works, by your own doing. We are justified by faith alone in Christ alone. That's what we've been talking about. That's what Paul keeps hammering on in this book of Galatians, that we cannot be saved by our own doing, that we are saved by Christ, not by adding our own works, or, but merely by trusting in what God has done for us. We are justified before God in Jesus, through Jesus. And that is true. That is absolutely true. But why? Why did God come and why did he justify us? 
by the means of his only son? Why did Jesus come live perfectly under the law on behalf of lawbreakers like you and me? Why did he come and redeem those who were under the judgment of God? To those who were enslaved to sin, why did Jesus come and redeem them? Why? Verse 5, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The whole point of Jesus coming to earth, the whole plan of redemption is so that we might be adopted into God's family. That we might be able to call God our Father like Jesus does. J.I. Packer says it this way, that adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers us. Adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers us. And in this text, in, in Galatians 4, there, I can see two benefits, two benefits from being adopted by God. First, as those who are adopted by God, we receive the inheritance. We receive the inheritance. We get all that the Father has. Second, there is a relationship. There is closeness with the Father. Inheritance and relationship. Through our adopted sonship, we get an inheritance. We are made an heir. Remember those two boys that we talked about at the beginning? Remember in our stories, we were the servant child. The servant child does not remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. One day, the son will receive the blessings and privileges of the firstborn son, and such we are made sons. The heir gets everything. All the blessings, all the privileges, all the goods, all the honor, all the joy, all the celebration, everything that the Father has, He gives to us. Ephesians 1 says that God blesses us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Every spiritual blessing. He, he lavishes on us the riches of grace. And to, to, to lavish on something is to overwhelmingly provide for our needs. The bank account of our Father is infinite, and He deposits it all into our account. We do not go without, for God provides exceedingly more than we ask or think. See, the purpose of the cross was not merely, not only payment for our sins. It, it, it was that. Absolutely it was that, but on the cross, the firstborn Son of God, who had all glory and had all everything from the Father, complete love and privilege as being the only Son of God, He died so that slaves could become sons, and as sons, gain all the blessings that Jesus had. J.I. Packer goes on to say, it would have been enough it would have been enough for God to release us from slavery, to rescue us from our captivity to the law, and so to redeem us from the curse. It would have been enough for God to do that. But God does not stop there. Once Christ has gained our freedom, He gathered us into His family. He went beyond redemption to adoption, 
turning slaves into sons. The inheritance that we receive as children of God is imperishable, unfading, and kept in heaven for us. We get the complete riches and blessings of being children of God because we are adopted by God. And how do we know? How do we know that we are children of God? How do we know that we are children of God? How do we know that we have an inheritance waiting for us? How do we know that these words of Paul are true, that for those who have put their faith in Jesus, how do we know this to be true? Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we have obtained an inheritance, that when we believed, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, the guarantee of our inheritance. Amen. The guarantee of our inheritance is the Holy Spirit, the the first down payment of the first blessing of God. This inheritance is the Holy, of this inheritance, the Holy Spirit, uh, He is coming and dwelling in our hearts. We were sealed in the Holy Spirit, and the inheritance is ours because we are sealed in the Holy Spirit. He is the first of many blessings to come secured, guaranteed, sealed. We will receive the inheritance because Christ has already given us the Holy Spirit. We have been given the Holy Spirit so we can trust that we will receive the inheritance. These two are interconnected. You cannot have one without the other. We have all, we have been given all the blessings and privileges of being a son or daughter lavished upon us because God has adopted us. And the second benefit of being adopted by God is that we have a relationship, a closeness with God as our Father. Look at verse 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I'm not sure. I'm not sure what you think of when you think of God being your father. Maybe your earthly father was not a good one. Maybe you have a hard time thinking of God being your father. Maybe he was non-existent, or he was never present Maybe you have a strained relationship with your father now. Maybe you, had a, maybe you had a great father growing up. And it's easy for you to see God as your loving father. I'm not sure where you're at. But I think we all have an idea. I think we all have some sort of idea of what a good father should be. We are all like Ebenezer Scrooge, standing next to the ghost of Christmas present as we look into the joyful family of Bob Cratchit. We know what a good father is like. We know it when we see it. But God is our perfect father. See, Timberline, the the, the whole point, the whole point of the gospel is that God can relate to us in a fatherly relationship. We have been speaking these last few weeks about justification, that we are made right before God. God is a judge, and due to our sin, we are are guilty. 
but we are declared not guilty because of the work on the cross. And we've been talking about that concept from many different facets and many different angles throughout the book of Galatians. God justified us. He made us right before God so that he could adopt us. Theologian Joel Beek says it this way, justification is the primary fundamental blessing of the gospel. It meets our most basic spiritual need, forgiveness and reconciliation with God. We have that in justification, but he goes on and says, we could not be adopted without it, but adoption is a richer blessing. Justification is the means to which God adopts us. Through adoption, God takes us from the courtroom and into the family room. Do we not so often think that we are before God in a courtroom? He is the judge, and we're sitting there as the defendant in a courtroom. Do we not often think of God that way? But see, Timberline, we're not standing in a criminal courtroom where we are the defendant. We are standing in an adoption courtroom. God has chosen us and loved us and adopted us as his children. We were slaves to sin. We were wayward children not worthy of his love. But Christ steps in, Christ our advocate, and says, I have done everything needed for God, our Father, to adopt us as children, to be loved now free and fully by God. We now have a relationship with God. He is our Father He cares for us. He loves us. He provides all that we need. He he hugs us and is intimate with us. He is tender with us. He enjoys us. He likes us. He wants to hear about our struggles and our needs. He is always eager to give good gifts to his children who ask of him. He hears us when we cry out, Father, I need you. He ever lives to share his goodness and his mercy with his children. He has all full authority and power to work out good for his children. God does not relate to us as a defendant, but as a child. So I want to ask you, Do you relate to God as a judge or a father? When you pray and ask for forgiveness of your sins, do you approach God as a judge or as a father? Are you full of fear when you do wrong? The perfect love of your father casts out fear. We approach the throne of God with confidence because God's throne for us in Christ Jesus is not a throne of a judge. It is the recliner in a living room where God is full of grace and mercy to help us in time of need. Is your Christian life, is your faith that of a servant or that of a son? Are you seeking to do that which is right and not do that which is wrong? because you are afraid of the judge? Or do you live in the joy and knowledge that you are secured in God's family, trusting that nothing will make your father love you less? Nothing will make your father leave you. 
How long do we sit in and consider our justification, whether or not we are right before God? Am I saved? Am I not? Let us move on from justification and move into a familial relationship with God. If you have put your faith in Christ, you are saved, you are justified, you are adopted. Go to God who loves you and likes you and cares for you. He is not a judge to you anymore. He is your Father. Live in the confidence that the Creator of the universe is your loving Heavenly Father. Seeing God as our Father changes everything. It does away with fear, for nothing can separate us from the love of our Father, not even death. It does away with anxiety because your heavenly Father cares for you even more than the birds or the flowers of the field. It does away with conflict because Christ has broken down the barrier of hostility, reconciling both Jew and Gentile together into one body so that we may have one access to the Father. It does away with pride and arrogance because we are fully accepted by God. It does away with the exhausted and overburdened, for your Father's yoke is easy. It does away with loneliness, for the Spirit of the Father lives in us. It does away with shame, for he who puts their trust in Christ will not be put to shame. It does away with the barrier between us and God as we can come freely to Him knowing that He gives good gifts to His children. Rest in the security knowing that you are a part of God's family. Timberline, we do not become children of God by worth or merit or anything that we have done. He has chosen us to be His children out of His goodness and mercy and love. He has justified us. He has turned us from slaves to sons so that He could bestow, us, bestow on us, lavish on us the blessings and privileges of being children of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. Amen. Let's pray. God, you are good. We thank you for all the ways in which you have loved us, that you have done what is necessary for us to be called children of God. Lord, help us to live in that reality. Um, that we do not have to be afraid, we do not have to run elsewhere, Lord, because we have a good and perfect loving Father. And Lord, as we take communion this morning, may, may we be reminded of the firstborn Son of God who has broken for us, that His blood was shed for us, so that we may become sons and daughters of God. Father, help us to live in this reality. Holy Spirit, we know we will receive the inheritance. Lord, help us to know it and feel it and experience it and know the truth that you love us. In Jesus' name, amen. The ushers are going to dismiss you row by row.